Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Today I'm talking with Yvonne Barnes-Holmes, who's a professor of psychology at Ghent University in Belgium. In addition to being a practicing psychotherapist and supervisor, she's also a clinical researcher who studies, among other things, the relationship between language, cognition, and human suffering. Yvonne has published over 120 scientific articles and book chapters and is a recognized world trainer in acceptance and commitment therapy. In our conversation, Yvonne and I begin with an exploration of why language is so fundamental to both human well-being and suffering, including a fascinating look at some of her research into how children's early reading experiences affect cognitive and social abilities. We then dive into how acceptance and commitment therapy differs from other forms of psychotherapy and end with some wide-ranging and speculative questions about the current state of mental health and psychotherapy. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Yvonne Barnes-Holmes, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So in preparation for this interview, I've been doing a lot of reading about you and your work. And, you know, the more I read about what you do and your work and what you write about and your interests, the one word that really stands out to me and seems to show up everywhere is language. So let me start by asking you an impossibly broad question, which is, why is language so important when it comes to human psychology and mental health? And and really, what is an experimental psychologist doing studying language? <laughs> I'll, answer, I'll try and answer the first one first. Language, I think, is evolutionarily where it's at for this species. So I think language and, and the prerequisites to language became increasingly important to allow us to become increasingly complex uh, psychologically. It's like language was the vehicle that sort of allowed or embedded complexity inside that. And as you want to get more and more adaptive to a more complex environment and to become a more complex organism, I think evolution set a context where language was the vehicle for that because language is both fixed and fluid. It has certain structures, but it allows you to evolve in an incredibly quick way. If I give you an instruction to not cross the road so you don't get killed, I can stop you getting killed in one simple instruction. So I think language has just primarily evolutionary power that I don't think any other vehicle has. The second bit of your question was then the link between language and mental health. And uh, that's a more difficult one to answer. It's not as straightforward as saying, oh, well, evolution primes you for it, because it really comes down to whether or not you believe as an individual, that mental health problems are language-based. But it, for me, I, I believe they are. And a lot of people obviously don't. They believe that there are complexities housed in a different place. But because I think complex psychology is housed in language, then I almost think by definition, mental health is also embedded in language because I think complex psychology and, and mental health are the same thing. So, so I'm just saying that the, the first bit, I think, is a sort of straightforward scientific piece. The second bit, I think, is more of an assumption that we made scientifically that, you know, language as complex human behavior is the root of everything. And then by definition is also the root of mental well-being as in mental ill health. And the experimental work we've been doing over the last 20, 30 years, I think, has gotten us closer and closer to believing that that assumption is very, very workable as a way of understanding mental well-being and mental suffering. So the second one, I think, more of a matter of a scientific opinion than accuracy, if you know what I mean. Sure, but it, it has some, I think when you step back, it's got some intuitive appeal to it, where you basically, in, in answering the first question, you made the case that in some ways, language is our most powerful tool, um, kind of our most powerful toolkit as a species that's made all these other tools and behaviors that, that um, have been so adaptive possible. But it, it sort of makes sense that um, like any kind of tool or power is, is sort of a double-edged sword, right? Like atomic energy can be incredibly useful and powerful and put to, to really important um, good ends, but it can 
obviously also be incredibly dangerous. Um, yeah. And so it, it's, to me, it intuitively makes sense that our, yeah, our greatest uh, tool is this kind of double-edged sword that is capable of, you know, not only great things, um, but horrible things as well in a lot of cases. So let's, I, I think it's pretty easy for people to understand maybe how, you know, uh, language, being able to kind of communicate things and, and teach things and, and learn things secondhand would have been adaptive to our species for a while. L let's kind of get into some more specifics, though, about how, in your experience, what are some specific ways in which language can be a, or the, the way we use language can be detrimental to our mental health? Well, in in the scientific work we've done and the clinical work we've done, there is a very clear, I'm going to use the word process, that binds two things together that seems to be really at the root of, of human suffering and without simplifying it too much. And it's it's when your sense of who you are is, I'm going to say, overly attached or fused or tied too tightly to the experiences that you have so for example if you have the thought that you just don't you just don't feel great today i have that thought that i'm i'm tired today that's my tiredness back or my heart's just not in this or i really feel down in the dumps today it's it's a bit like when that that experience that feeling and that thought become overly connected to who you are as a human being on an ongoing basis if i was to simplify mental suffering I would simplify it to that very piece, that over-attachment or that fusion, some people say, between who you are as a human being and your worth that goes with that and these ongoing, usually painful experiences that you have. When they get too closely bound, that individual is always in trouble. Why, why, does that, why is there such a diversity, do you think, among people in terms of, to really simplify things, the extent to which they really believe their thoughts or they believe thoughts about themselves so so you know some people might have a thought of like oh i just you know i just feel really kind of down in the dumps today and i don't really feel like doing much so you know i guess i'm just gonna end up laying on the couch all day and some people might say would have the same thought and think like yeah but you know what i, I just i know i gotta go for a run and i'll feel better afterwards so i'm just gonna do it anyway like why 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 do people have such a different relationship with kind of the, their beliefs and, and the way, the stories they tell themselves, I guess. Because your history establishes that certain thoughts have certain functions. So if you have a thought, then that thought will predict your next action. And certain histories make it very likely that certain thoughts will predict certain actions for some people and predict different actions for other people. So you and I could have exactly the same thought at exactly the same time, and it might even feel the same. But because we would have different histories, we would potentially have a very different reaction or next behavior to those thoughts. So just because the surface or the topography or the form of the thought we were having was exactly the same, that doesn't really say anything in terms of predicting what either of us is going to do next. So in our way of thinking, your history, your training, your interactions with the world, all of those things, direct and indirect, they establish certain functions to certain thoughts for certain people in certain contexts. And that's why you and I, I could have the same thought topographically. But the function that that thought would then have in terms of what I do with it could be completely the opposite of the function that thought would have for you. And, and the behavioral way of thinking that comes from your history. Yeah, this is great. Okay, so let's let's kind of unpack this and dive into this a little bit, this distinction between kind of topography or the, the form of a thought and its function, sort of the associations we have with it. Um, so so let's let's use a really practical example. Let's say you and I both have the, the same identical thought, which occurs to us, which is it's, I don't know, it's, it's 5.30 p.m. We both just got home from work and the thought occurs to us like, mm, I should go for a run, but I just, my heart's not in it. I don't feel up to it today. Now, I have that thought and I slump back into the couch and say, well, you know, I guess that's it. And so I, I just lay on the couch and watch Netflix for the rest of the evening. <laughs> you you respond to it by saying, essentially, well, even though I don't feel like it, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and you end up going for the run despite it. So what would be an example of our differences in our history around that thought that would lead to 
a different sort of reaction to it. Can, can you break, like, what would be a specific example of how we could arrive at such different reactions to the same thought? Okay, so if I backward engineer a little bit, and if I just sort of start with whenever you slump on the sofa, there's a lot of other behavior going on, like, see, this isn't that typical of me. Oh, God, why can't I do this? Oh, I, I, you know, I am lazy. Maybe I had a, a so the, there is a lot of other collateral behavior going on as well as us identifying this one or two functions you you don't run, I run. But there's an awful lot of collateral behavior also going on. So it's like those packages, right? Now, so in, just to be clear, yeah. in, in addition to the thought of I don't feel very energetic today, I then have these other uh, like kind of behaviors, and they, they're kind of internal, they're thoughts. But like I posters. start thinking to myself, exactly. that means I can't go for a run, or I yeah. always do this, or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and then you feel slightly more disappointed in yourself, then you have a yawn, and you feel even more tired. So there's all these, you're, you're, so you're actually having a very different cluster than I'm having. It's just that they overlap in a very specific way, in a very specific form. Now, if I could bring that back to your question, bring that back um, in the history. In my history, for example, I may have learned, like, for example, if, you know, I remember one time that my son was at a school play and he had to introduce the play um, and he had to say, you know, everybody's welcome to this year's nativity play. And now one of his things before that was saying, but mom, I'm really nervous. I can't do it. And one of the things we worked on was just saying, you know, can you can you put the word nervous um, on the podium and have nervous at the same time as doing it? So I said, you can be nervous and at the same time you can do it. Whereas imagine in your training history, you're in exactly the same scenario and your mom said, don't worry, son, you'll not be nervous. Don't worry. You'll just, just get on with it now. You'll be, be a strong boy. I mean, I'm really simplifying, mm. but I'm just saying sure. that in, in, in one training history, you can be nervous, anxious, and achieve. And then the other training history, being nervous and anxiety gets in the way of achieving. So you then build up a very different relationship between your anxiety and your following behavior and one is an obstacle and one isn't an obstacle now there are no major outcomes from single instances like that but again we're trained in these clusters we're trained to see anxiety as an obstacle or we're trained not to see feelings especially negative ones as an obstacle so these are just small examples of the different types of historical patterns that that allow anxiety to produce action afterwards and that stop and the law anxiety did not produce action afterwards. Right. So in, so in other words, it sounds like what you're saying is based on our histories, we could attach very different meanings to the same thought or feeling, which is for me, the thought of, I don't feel very energetic, right? That sort of what that has meant in the past is that I, I can't do anything. Like I, yeah. I can't do anything difficult. Right. And so yeah. That, that becomes then a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas for you, yeah. that thought means, well, it's a bummer that I'm not feeling energized, but I can still, I can still go for a run and not feel energized. Exactly. Those two things aren't incompatible. Exactly. And, and lead then, to very different behaviors. Exactly. And, and it'll also lead to a very different relationship with yourself when you say it has a different meaning. It, it across time, says something about the meaning that you are to yourself. You see, that's typical of me. I really am lazy, blah, blah, blah. You can you can erode that meaning and you can influence that meaning. If you had that situation with the run for, you know, three days a week for three months, you could change that meaning so that across that time, what you would mean to yourself when it came to exercise, health and well-being would become increasingly negative. So meaning can change. Right, right. Yeah, well, that, that sort of gets us to the topic of the, the next kind of question I wanted to ask you on this topic, which is why is language and, and narrative and storytelling so important in psychotherapy specifically when like when people are in counseling and therapy and they, and they want to they want to change something about the way they behave or, or the way they look at themselves? Um, how, how does that work? Like how do you let's say you've got that in the in our example here, you've got my mindset where for me feeling bad is, associated with not doing anything with the inability to do something how can you how do we harness kind of the the power of language to 
change that? Um, is, is that even doable? Is, is that, um, you know, how does that work? Well, I think you're, you're right to pick up on the fact that that's a tricky one because language is both the problem and the solution. And, and that is tricky. But the analysis, in a way, is a solution. It's the analysis that allows you to understand what it feels like to be the owner of that narrative. What does that narrative actually mean in terms of what behaviors does that narrative own? So what is that narrative? How negative is it? And how much does that narrative own that client rather than that client owning that narrative? So the glue that connects language as the problem to language as the solution, in our view, is the analysis that allows you to really understand where the where the meaning is problematic and problematic in the sense of how much unhealthy behavior does that own we then use our our language around that analysis of that understanding and we use our language our analysis will say well when the client says x you, we might say something like you know what you know I, I you know i totally know where you're coming from i would have done the same thing in that situation so it's not random talk it's very very highly structured verbal and nonverbal output inside a very safe supportive relationship that are really strong ingredients that allow us to manipulate unhealthy language toward healthy language and in doing so change unhealthy behavior to healthy behavior yeah you know it's um so it's sort of about in a sense to kind of reduce things down and kind of changing your story about yourself and about what certain things about yourself mean um it's i'm often really grateful that i i had sort of an unusual path into becoming a clinical psychologist which was i was a um i studied english literature in college in, in my undergrad um, wow so it didn't take a single course in psychology <laughs> as an undergrad. <laughs> really, me. That probably was a and, good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I when I hear more about people's experiences as an undergrad in psychology, I often think I really dodged a bullet there. Um, but one of the things that that in a really practical way has been really useful to me, you know, kind of translating my my training as a as a literary analyst you know, analyst basically to my work as a therapist is. In, in, when you study literature, you're taught to think really carefully about formal aspects of a story. Like, for instance, there's the first person, like a character. You can think of a character um, is kind of a first person perspective. But then there's the narrator in the story who, who can kind of see the different characters and sort of pass judgment on the characters. So it's sort of a wider perspective. But then you can also think about, well, the author is sort of creating both right? It's, it's sort of authoring both of those. And it's, it's one of the, it's kind of the magic of stories that we can, we can both be, we can, in a way, kind of delude ourselves into pretending like we're just the character. We can live uh -huh. a story and it feels like we're in that first person with the character. But then, of course, we can also step back into these various different levels and see how, like how, a narr how the way a narrator is talking about a character influences how we feel about them. Uh -huh. Or how the author sets up characters also influences how we feel about it. So I, I often work with my clients and I, I sort of have them try and make these kind of shifts of, you know, we're, sometimes we're in the first person, we're just kind of in the flow of things and the flow of life, but it's possible to kind of step back and take these different perspectives. And I, I want to ask you about a, a part of your work that I think is really interesting. You, you have a paper on what you call social perspective taking uh -huh. and reading experiences uh -huh. in children. Uh -huh. um, so speaking of, you know, you're talking about your kid um, in the school play, and I've got really young children right now, and they love to read. And so I'm, I'm thinking a lot about this. But could you walk us through a little bit what social perspective taking is and why it's important and what the connection is to reading as a child? I think this is a really fascinating area. And it's kind of a big question, but. Yeah, so, I mean, social perspective taking was really about trying to separate out your, the holding of your own perspective and at the same time, the ability to, from that perspective, additionally appreciate the perspective of another person, character or whatever. So remember, it's not like a shift in perspective. We used to years and years ago talk about it as perspective shifting, and there's some people mm -hmm. still do, but it isn't a shift because you haven't moved. You're still anchored inside your own perspective. But there's an incredible skill that children learn, and I think reading certainly correlates with this, and when you're reading a novel, you've got to try and work out why the protagonist is doing what they're doing. And 
what impact that's going to have on all the other characters. So the, even a quite a relatively simple children's novel will have all these character agendas going on. And what the child is actually essentially learning to do is essentially from their own perspective as one place, they're then learning to see all these other perspectives going on and how they will interact with each other. And if X does this, what impact is it likely to have on, on it's a, a game of prediction probabilities from all these perspectives at the same time? So what we were really trying to look at uh, in that study and the other work we've done in perspective taking is does reading uh, reading a lot or does, does, does reading at a young age correlate in any way or influence um, a person's ability to, while having their own perspective, simultaneously take the perspective of another individual. And in short, it sort of looks like it does. But in a way, again, that makes sense because you're reading about these protagonists, you're reading about the the influence of a subject and an object, you're, um, and you're still inside your own perspective at the same time. And that, that's quite a skill because a young child who's just learning to take their own perspective simultaneously is also learning that there are other perspectives than their own and those perspectives interact with their own. And when you're reading, you're always the reader as like you said, as well as actually being inside the story. So you get this ability to operate inside these multiple layers. And reading is just an incredibly good vehicle for doing that. Now, there will be some types of reading, more informative readings, less like to do that. But character-based and story-based readings, and especially the ones where there's complex character development and there's complex plots, you, you're, they're very likely to um, create opportunities for the acquisition of a skill of the taking of multiple perspectives and the understanding that multiple perspectives influence the different characters. And if you learn that skill early on, then that, that would, I think, turn out to be not only a very important educational tool, but it would turn out to be a very important social tool because complex social world requires taking your own perspective and at the same time, for example, having a perspective on somebody else, having empathy, et cetera. So that's really what the concept of social perspective taking was about. It was about understanding how you can be anchored and fluid in another person's perspective at the same time and just asking a question, do you think does early reading allow people a context for building up that skill? And, and that paper was really saying, I think it does actually. Yeah. You know, it, it makes me think of um, one, one of my girl's favorite books right now is, is the classic uh, Dr. Seuss book, The Cat in the Hat. And one, the, 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 I think it's the la very last line of the book, you know, after the cat has made this huge mess, but then it's kind of come back to save the day and they've cleaned everything up and there's the two little kids and they see their, the, the fish says, hey, mom's coming home. Like, <laughs> and they've just barely in time, they've cleaned everything up and the cat has left. And the last line of the book is, um, they're, they're sort of pondering, should they tell their mom about what happened? And the last line of the book, the, the narrator stops narrating the, the story and a asks the reader, asks the kids who are reading the story, well, what would you do? Like, oh, would you great. tell your mom what happened? Yeah. Um, and so it's a great example of how reading is is literally training kids to practice thinking about the world from different people's perspectives, right? Yeah, and the accuracy, like it's, for example, if you want to train children in false belief, they have to know whenever you know, but you know that somebody else doesn't know. And it's that perspective shifting in terms of shifting between what's true and what's not true, shifting between I know that you don't know, but you don't know that I do know. <laughs> I mean, those are very, very complex skills that are essential to navigating relationships, intimacy, adult relationships, and they have to be put down in all these ways. So those are very powerful, interesting, and not abstract experiences that children can have in a book that will translate into real life in a very powerful way without lots of instruction. Yeah, so I, I think it's, um, I think we can see how, and I, I, I think this is what your guys' paper is getting at, is that if I had to really reduce things down, it, it's, it's not crazy to imagine that kids who read a lot might be better at this social perspective taking, and it might facilitate things like 
um, empathy with other people, for instance, like the compassion, like pity, like being able to take someone else's perspective, which is a very useful thing um, in relationships and society and all that kind of thing. One question I had, and I don't know if you know if there's research on this or if you guys have thought about this or studied this, but it, it seems equally useful for, and this goes back to our first kind of question that we were talking about, not only to be able to take perspective on other people, to stay anchored in your own perspective, but also to see the world through the eyes of other people, but also to be able to take multiple perspectives on yourself. Um, what, what do you make of that? Do you, do you think, I mean, it, would you agree that that, like, is that an important skill? And is it something that you would, would you predict that a lot of reading, for instance, as a child would facilitate that being able to, to kind of stay anchored in a way, but also to be able to see yourself in, from sort of different perspectives or with different lenses? Yeah. So, okay. So if I break that down, I think it, what we're sort of, uh, one way we put it like this is that it, you're always operating from the one perspective, right? But you can stand in different places in that perspective. So for example, you might think of if you're having an experience, you can stand behind that experience and ask yourself, I wonder how that's really affecting me. So the sort of place you stand from while you're having the experience is at the same time as having the experience standing behind the experience. Now, that's all inside the same perspective, but there are just different parts and different places that you can be anchored in. So instead of being sort of caught underneath the experience, you're sort of the holder of the experience. So it's not like it's multiple perspectives. It's just like, you know, um, having the experience affect you in different ways. And one of the ways is the having of it. And one of the ways at the same time is the standing behind it. Now, I that is a very emotional skill and that has to be trained up, to be honest, in a, a predominantly emotional way that involves direct contact with other be with other human beings. So at one more sort of abstract or rational level, I would think to some extent that would a competence there would correlate with reading, but I would imagine that correlation would be far lower than the correlation you would find with the amount of experiential, close, secure, supportive contact you would have with significant others, I would be fairly certain that that would be a bigger predictor of the strong acquisition of that very complex skill than something like reading would be. I think reading would layer on top of it, but I think without a sort of multi-person, warm, supportive, ongoing ability to hold experiences and not let them scare you too much or not let them dictate what you do i think you would need a training history like that in order to build up competence and fluency in that skill i don't think something like reading would add too much to the variance on that to be honest yeah it's interesting i especially reading about um just like if there was i would imagine kind of more advanced reading like i think of um sort of more sophisticated novels in particular where you're you're watching not just what characters do and what they feel necessarily but the mark of kind of at least kind of modern novels is they're well frankly they're very psychological they're very introspective you're, you're watching characters kind of do complex things within their own minds um in relation to different feelings and I, so i i kind of wonder if there's a there's the potential and maybe that this is a far more advanced skill this, we're not talking about four-year-olds here but like um watching sort of vicarious learning watching characters um do different things within their one perspective um sort of analyzing themselves and looking at different thoughts and, and different perspectives um, yeah i think it would add if you had a history that supported that skill i would certainly think it would add flexibility and momentum to that skill because you'd be seeing different exemplars of that skill in operation and then you'd be able to connect it well i'm a bit like that i'm not a bit like that i so i think it certainly does it would add flexibility so it would it would be impacting directly on the skill, but I don't think it'd be strong enough to create a skill because, as you said, but I think by the time you get to that level, you have acquired a high level of competence in that skill or you haven't. But if you have, I think that sort of experience and, and, and good entertainment and TV and connection can do that to you. It adds layers and flexibility to it, but I, I, it wouldn't be enough for, for skill acquisition, if you know what I mean. That's a great distinction between um, acquisition versus facilitation later on or flexibility. Yeah. 
So let's let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I want to talk about acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, so this is something I know you you know a lot about and, and you sort of work within. In layman's terms, like what is acceptance and commitment therapy exactly, and what what makes it distinctive from other approaches to mental health, like psychoanalysis or cognitive behavioral therapy, for example? Okay, so I mean, first of all, it's acceptance based, and and a, a lot of traditional therapeutic moves weren't acceptance-based. They were about changing the frequency, nature, or content of your experience and minimizing that experience instead of being frightened to be X, right? And and generally, psychology has made, and I, and I think a lot of the world has really made a, a sort of psychological move towards being more acceptance-based and less distraction-based. So I think that, that, that's quite a generic thing, but psychology has certainly embraced it. Um, and so ACT is a bit different from old school therapies like that, but it's not completely different. There's a lot of acceptance-based uh, thinking about um, these days. I think the, the other really key component, I think, that does make ACT different is that storying and that narrative thing. And, and from a, a sort of ACT-based view, it's about saying, see that story that, that is your sense of self. I want you to take a more hierarchical view on that story. So there's like you, and then there's you noticing that you have a story, and that story sort of guides your behavior. So in Underneath Act, uh, um, there was this hierarchical move that said you are much more than your experience. You are like the house, and your your experience is like the furniture. And it's about operating up at that level. So no one experience gets to dictate who you are or gets to be a key driver in your life unless it's one that you've actually chosen to drive. And that hierarchical view is not particularly common. There are a lot of psychologists talked about the importance of self, but I don't think the therapeutic traditions really harnessed that um, hierarchical sense of self as chooser as owner of the experience um in the way that act is done so in that respect i think that part of it is 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 very different from the other therapeutic traditions not that they ignored self but i don't think they really attempted to anchor self in a hierarchical way as the owner of the, so there's the owner of the experience and there's the experiencer and act really sets you up to be the owner of your experience. And then whatever your experience, choose your action, whatever your experience. And I, I do believe, certainly when I was learning act. Sure. So let, to make this concrete, what if I'm going to have you uh, role play for me here for a second. Let's say I showed up in, in therapy with you. And my, my issue was this, this issue of not feeling motivated to work out. Let's say that, you know, I come in, I say, you know, I, I really want to work, start working out more, but every day I get home from work and I just don't, you know, I just feel lethargic and I don't feel excited about it. And I just end up laying on the couch. Um, so if that was kind of the presenting problem, how, for like briefly play a traditional, say, cognitive behavioral therapist and how they would approach that and then play an act therapist and how they would approach that to like, like, how would you deal with that particular issue in the context of therapy between those two different traditions? So if I was a, you know, a more traditional therapist, I, in a way, would get stuck in on the, the, the story about, well, what are the factors? Are you like that every day? Are there some days you're not like that? Exactly how strong is that feeling? Um, how tired did you get enough sleep? I, I, I might actually just really get my teeth into the thing that you just presented me with. From an act perspective, it come at it in a completely different way. I would just say, so what does it feel like to really have that battle going on? Who is it that's having that battle going on? So in the first example, we're getting into the layer that you present with. And in the second example, I'm not getting into the layer that you present with. I'm actually drawing you up into a much bigger layer that says, you know, that sounds awful. What's it like to have that struggle with yourself? So it's almost like the different traditions are operating at these different levels. And I don't mean that it's surface level. I just mean that one is at the, the level of what you say. And the other is at the level of, I wonder what the function of that's like. I wonder what it like, it's like to be the, the person who experiences that struggle. 
So can you say that it's like different levels? Yeah, so the, the, the literary critic in me is the way I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying is the, the first approach, a traditional cognitive approach, would stay in the first person with them. It, you know, they, they would engage with that particular thought. Um, whereas the, it sounds like what you're saying, the ACT approach is by asking that question of what's it like to have that conflict going on, you're sort of drawing them up into a more third person or narrative. Exactly. It's like the difference between the actor and the director. Yeah. Mm. Instead of just being the actor, I want you to know what the actor feels like. And, and I mean, and and not, but I'm also asking you, could you see this from the director's point of view as well? Again, there's that multiple, that, that's why perspective for us is so important. It's that ability to have these different views or simultaneous views on that experience because it's it's not the fact that the person's not running that's really causing the pain it's the struggle with themselves as a person who's not running that's that's where the hurt in this really is and the more hurt you are about that it actually predicts less running and not more running okay unpack that a little bit it's not it's not the you said it's not the fact that they're not running that's the real problem it's the fact that they're struggling with themselves yeah. about not running can you unpack that a little bit and like why that's the real problem yeah so because there's the fact of not running and it's just a fact of not running (laughs) they just didn't run that's not what's painful to them what's painful to them is is all of that self-criticism what what not running means it means that i'm a person who's not motivated it means that i can't achieve things it means that i haven't changed it means that i'm not contr- and i mean it sounds exaggerated but it isn't really when when people do things that they don't want to do or they fail to do things that they want that sort of bigger picture narrative kicks in with lots of things like isn't that typical of me why can't i just do this you think i should be able to do this haven't i it's all of that struggle, that psychological struggle around the absence of running and what it means for that human being that was where the pain lies. The, the, the lack of action about running in and of itself is not painful. It's the way you interpret that and what it says about you as a human being and the extent to which you've got your life under control. That's a very painful debate to have with yourself. Yeah, and so this is, like you mentioned, this is kind of the core of an, an acceptance-based um, approach to mental health, I think, as opposed to a more, um, I don't know what you would call it, I think of it as kind of combative, um, you know, get in there and change your thoughts kind of approach. Yeah, more content re- level. Content, yeah, right, right. This is more about your relationship to um, your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviors, as opposed to changing the thoughts and feelings themselves. So this reminds me a lot of, there's a, a kind of, small, um, relatively small compared to traditional cognitive behavioral therapy or ACT, um, acceptance commitment therapy, there's a relatively unknown approach called uh, metacognitive therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it reminds me a lot of of the, the ACT approach, which is the central kind of tenant is essentially that it's not it diverges from traditional cognitive therapy and it says it's not your thoughts about things that really matter it's it's your thoughts about your thoughts it's it's your beliefs about what your thoughts mean about you or about your future or about what you're going to do that really matters and so it has this similar approach where it really try, tries to take people onto the the meta level in their language um are you are you familiar with this approach and do you think it is it um is it basically identical to ACT? Is it is it different in important ways? Yeah, I mean, the experience I've had with that approach with some with some colleagues of Adrian Wells um, uh-huh. in the UK is, is called Method of Levels, and and it it is essentially that a metacognitive approach. And the, you know, when I've been in the in a training environment with with some of Adrian's colleagues, you couldn't tell you couldn't tell us apart from them it's 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 really in delivery it is incredibly uh similar because the function or the meaning of uh, and the why the meaning contains pain and and what that pain will then make you do it's essentially the same functional analytic move it's essentially the same model it says yeah but you know, what is that meaning and what will that meaning then tell you to do in terms of behavior? So it's essentially going after the same thing. Right, right. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to 
ask you maybe the most challenging question I have for you today, uh-huh. <laughs> which is what is relational frame theory and how does it relate to uh, acceptance commitment therapy and your approach to mental health? So relational frame theory is um, a behavior analytic or a behavioral science based account of language and cognition and in terms of understanding the functions that language has. So understanding what language looks like, what it feels like, what the structure of it is, and what functions it has. So that's essentially what relational frame theory is really trying to do. It's trying to get a behavioral a behaviorally based approach that understands the structure of language and its functions in terms of behavior. Um, Historically, um, relational frame theory, RFT, grew up as sort of a sibling of acceptance and commitment therapy. They both come from the same tradition. They actually both come from the same person in lab, Professor Stephen Hayes. Um, But one is a therapy and one is a science. So they have points of contact. And Traditionally, they had, I think, a lot more points of contact. They were both very behaviorally rooted. They were both very rooted in the analysis of functions. They were philosophically rooted in very similar places. And totally understandably, as ACT got bigger and bigger as a therapy, I think it sort of left home and left its sibling relational frame theory behind so that then relational frame theory went one way. And act went another way. Now, that, that is, that's my opinion. Other people have different opinions. But... I'm in a reasonably privileged position because I'm very familiar with both. And that's honestly the way I see it. The way I see it is that they diverged. And I think that divergence was a mistake. Um, because can, can I you explain that divergence? Like what, what are those main points of divergence between active therapy and... I think the agenda, like we talked about with metacognitive, the agenda about what that what is that story what does it really mean to you as a human being and what functions does that meaning have what does it then how much of your behavior does it then control i think act has become less and less about looking at the functions of that meaning um and less and less in the sense that it has it has unhinged itself quite systematically, I think, from that functional analytic or behavioral tradition. And I, for me, ACT was always a therapy that was rooted in analyzing the functions of behavior, because I think analyzing the functions of behavior is a very powerful, very effective way to do things. So anything that shifts away from that, for me, would be less useful and and it is with great sadness, I think, that I've watched over 20-odd years, I've watched that that divergence of the two siblings. And what we have done in, in, in the University of Ghent and, and the team myself and my husband has uh, with the grant that we have at the minute is we have attempted to bring them back together. We've attempted to reconnect that very functional relational frame theory-based way of thinking and connect that back into understanding meaning and understanding the function that meaning has in people's lives. So we've tried, haven't really believed that they got separated. We've then spent, certainly in the last five years in Belgium, trying to bring them back together again. Yeah, you know, my, my kind of outsider perspective, I would say I was, a little background information for people who aren't familiar, the, the, it's often the the history of kind of modern psychotherapy is often um, talked about in terms of waves, at least in terms of the broad category of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, really broadly speak. First wave, what was sort of behaviorism, think of like, you know, kind of Skinner and um, stuff like that. And then the second wave was ushered in by the cognitive revolution. So it was very much about the content of your thoughts and how that influences your, how you feel and, and what you do. And then third wave, which which is kind of characteristic of the, probably the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. It, it, now, and this is my, this is my take. I'd be interesting to see what you think. I think it started off maybe when, when ACT and RFT were, were more closely aligned as sort of a return to a more behaviorist kind of functional um, approach to treating emotional suffering. But in the last, especially in the last maybe 10 years, it, it seems to be veering off course from that return to functionalism into something, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I, I feel like a, a lot of the people I, I talk to and act, it, it seems like it, it's become 
like mindfulness therapy is <laughs> sort yeah. of like what it seems to be kind of devolving into. And in, in my, this is in my kind of outsider opinion. Um, and, and it's really, I, it feels like a mistake to me to be um, kind of letting go of that functional perspective, like that move to me, the move in, in relational, relational frame theory and act to essentially look at uh thoughts as sort of verbal behaviors, um, which goes back to Skinner, of course, it is just, that's the whole enchilada, as they say over here in the States. And it worries me that we're kind of moving away. It seems like we're moving away from that a little bit. Um, what do you, what do you think of that assessment? I think you're, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think you should come and work with me. I think you're, <laughs> I think you're, you're absolutely, I don't know if I'm an insider, an outsider, I don't know, but I, I, that's exactly my experience as a researcher and as a clinician and as a participant um, in this field, I think I think the the very magical piece was the very thing that I think they threw the baby out with the bathwater in that sense. Now, as long as you know, I think that return back to a behavioral way of thinking was a great move. As long as you go RFT rather than Skinner. Because we right. already know the Skinnerian concepts fell short on complexity. I mean, that that's just a fact. But so if you can harness complexity with something like relational frame theory, you can return to your a behavioral, functional, analytic way of thinking. And now you can do it in a way that allows you to really tackle complex psychological events and their meaning, which you couldn't do with Skinner. So I, I, you know, have said this many times, and it is with great sadness and regret that I think ACT didn't really, when they saw this ship being steered, you know, and mindfulness was a characteristic of where the ship was going in those days, when they saw it being steered that way, moving away from their functional roots, given that, that RFT was already quite solid at the time, I think the community made a strategic or non-strategic mistake and lost the very thing I think was the essence of ACT early on that actually was the golden egg. It was a return to that functional way of thinking, but post-Skinnerian, not a return to the three-term contingencies or animal-based models. I mean, that's the whole point. We needed complexity that animals don't have. And I think I think that was the mistake that the ACT community made, but but they made it and we've tried very very hard to have a conversation about the fact that that was a mistake yeah yeah okay we're going to move on to the the kind of final section um mm. of the discussion today and, and i'm gonna i want to ask some kind of bigger perhaps more speculative questions but uh -huh. i think they're kind of fun um so let's suppose a time traveling clinical psychologist from 100 years in the future arrives shows up in your lab and says guess what we've figured out the key mechanisms that underlie virtually all forms of psychopathology and, and emotional suffering. Before they give you the answers, what are your best guesses for what some of those factors might be? In other words, like what, what are the basic ingredients in emotional suffering? I know it's a huge question, but if, if you had to kind of just sort of guess, what, what would you say? Well, I, I would say one of them is that, is that self-fusion piece that we already talked about is the ability for a whole human being's worth to get drawn on drawn down to individual experiences if you don't crack that you haven't cracked human suffering to be honest i think you also have to understand that you also have to crack the way human beings relate in a connected way to other human beings and how powerful and how important and how dangerous that actually can be so I, I would ask that person well have you cracked this this and this because if you haven't i'm absolutely sure you haven't got it and so it's that self bit the connection between me and the experiences i have the thoughts i have the feelings it's that self and other bit that i think is part of the problem and also becomes part of the solution and it also then, you'd have to have really gotten a handle on, but do you understand the patterns that psychology moves around in? And do you understand the functions of those patterns? And I am absolutely certain that if you haven't cracked those three areas, even 100 years from now, you won't have cracked them. And, 
And I'm very confident that part of the gains that we are trying to make, and to some extent I think we have made, are by cracking those three nuts. And I think those are, and the glue that hangs those nuts together. And I, I, I think we've tried very hard to see them as the core pieces. And when you look at them, they're so powerful. Can you restate those again really quickly? What are the three, the three core pieces? So there is that self-based piece, the relationship that I have with my thoughts and feelings, et cetera. Right. What some people That's call cognitive piece. fusion, being yeah, fused with your exactly. thoughts. Yeah. There's that self and other the self story and the story about others and about the meaning how you, re- how you relate to other people exactly and, what and and the meaning that other people have for you the functions the importance of connectedness whether other people are repetitive or aversive fundamentally that's the second piece and the third piece are those relational patterns those stories and the functions that stories have because the stories will make you approach you know, approach cake instead of an apple. I mean, I'm really simplifying, but I'm just saying that it has these really important, powerful behavioral functions. And I think if you haven't cracked functions and meaning, and if you haven't cracked self and other, and you haven't cracked self, I won't believe you that even if it's 100 years from now, I won't believe you really understand complex human beings and why their behavior is not random. Yeah, it it goes, sometimes I think what, what we really need in, in clinical psychology and, and mental health is we, we need an injection of maybe um, literature people and anthropologists, you know, <laughs> because I think we so often miss those, those, that the, the narrative part of emotional suffering and the relational part. I, I think traditionally psychologists are so inward focused, you know, it probably comes out of our, our roots in, in psychoanalysis and Freud, but uh, yeah, I think we have, we continue to struggle with those two second pieces, I think, that you mentioned, yeah. especially. I think also we have a tendency in our training to be, to be, to see complexity as frightening and to be drawn down to distilling things down into neural activity or pathology or whatever. And I actually try to take a different approach where I am not frightened of complexity. I think complexity is the problem and it is also the solution. So without using too many concepts or making it too abstract, I, I think we should actually embrace complexity, but try to have, you know, a, a systematic way or, a, you know, a taxonomy of actually understanding what is the behavior involved in complexity. So I think distilling down and trying to simplify is something we train to do. And I actually think we're going the wrong way. I'm so glad you, that is a perfect segue. You brought up the term taxonomy because my next question for you was literally, it's a thought experiment I do often, which is to imagine that for some reason, um, the whole world of kind of clinical psychology as a field is forced to eliminate all of our current language and taxonomy for mental health and psychopathology and rebuild it from scratch. In other words, um, you're not allowed, no one's allowed to use the word depression anymore. No one's allowed to use the word panic anymore. We, we have to get rid of all of our oh, language. That'd be nice. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, of course, and, and then as part of my thought experiment, naturally, I'm in charge of this whole endeavor and get to dictate it. But, <laughs> oh, well, I might have to fight you on that, but we're in agreement anyway. So let, let's suppose, for example, that someone else is more qualified to head this up, someone like yourself, maybe. Um, where would you begin with this? Like what, maybe what area of clinical psychology in particular just really needs a taxonomical refresh? Oh my God, I actually think all of it. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think, but if I, my starting position would be deeply appreciating that all human beings are equal. People hmm. aren't broken, they aren't flawed. They're not, you know, pathologically distorted. I think the fundamental position is that that as a starting position, everyone is equal. It's just that some people are on a track that was predicted by their histories that make self or fulfilling and healthy behaviors extremely low rate in terms of probability. So once I'd done that groundwork, that fundamentally equality-based approach because psychology is terribly stigmatizing and one I think that's morally bankrupt and two I just don't think it works I don't think it it works to help people get a life I just I I I can't see how that you would help someone to grow 
by stigmatizing them, even if it was accurate. I just, I just don't think that's a workable solution. And that's why that equality piece for me has to be the bedrock for any intervention um, on human behavior. And of course, I would say this, but then I would recalibrate the whole way of thinking away from surface level and towards functional level. I mean, I would say that, but the, it's that starting position. It's that equality, that non-broken. I mean, people are suffering terribly, but I don't really believe that anybody's flawed. It, people don't come out of the womb flawed. I mean, I'm fairly certain of that at this stage. So I think if that starting position is not there, I sort of think it's downhill all the way, to be honest, if that's not there. Yeah. I think that's, in some ways, I think when I, especially when I talk to and interact with other mental health professionals, um, that's my, there's two kinds of mental health professionals in the world. There's the ones who think there's something wrong with people, fundamentally people are broken because they, they have some sort of um, emotional distress. And then there's people who take a much more functional perspective on it. So, and what, what the other way I look at this too, is that I think when you think of, um, if you think of health or like medicine generally, if you think of all the areas of medicine, um, in a lot of ways, certain fields of medicine are, are, are very advanced because the, the organ systems involved are just far more simplistic. You know, the, the liver is a far more simplistic. Heart, than, yeah. Even the it's heart is a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost laughably simplistic compared to the brain. Mechanical, right? yeah. <laughs> um, but, but one of the, the signs of advance in a field of medicine is have they shifted from a descriptive mode of thinking about illness to a mechanistic one, to what are the mechanisms underlying it? And it, it seems like that's the big crisis in, in our field right now that we, we seem so, we're so stuck. I think this is the thing that motivates my thought experiment for a taxonomical refresh is we are stuck in these really, not just untrue, but I think actually unhelpful and hurtful, descriptive ways of thinking about and labeling mental health instead of trying to understand the mechanisms, the functions underlying them, which often are perfectly, there's, they have perfect internal consistency and, and they make perfect sense when you think about a person's history. They're, they're not defective. They're just, they're, they're ordered the wrong direction. Yeah, exactly. They're just headed in an unhealthy, in an unhealthy way. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I, 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 I completely, I completely agree with that. I mean, I've never, I've never had a client. I mean, people who have difficult relationships with sleep and food and and exercise. I mean, of course, they, they, they all have negative outcomes, but I, I've never really looked at a client and thought, no, you are absolutely fundamental. You're just fundamentally, totally, and absolutely broken. I always see history. I always see people with distorted relationships with other people. I see people who don't want to be broken. I see people doing everything they can not to be broken. It's just that it, it never, ever works. What they keep doing is basically, you know, same coat, different dress. They just don't know that they're doing the same thing over and over. It, just my intuitive experience of human beings is, is very different from what I was taught. In psychology, right, right. Okay, so I'm gonna wrap up here. But my, my final question for you is: I believe you you in addition to doing research, um, you also do you do some clinical work, right? And you you also yeah, train. A lot. Is that is that yeah. is that right? Do you yeah. train? Yeah, we people? do. Yeah. So, based on your experiences as um, not just a scientist and, and not just a clinician yourself, but as someone who actually like mentors and trains other clinicians, what do you? What do you see as some of the most important qualities in a therapist? And specifically, like, what are the general or more kind of innate factors that predispose someone to being a therapist? You know, if, if someone says, I want to be a therapist, like, wh what, are you, what are you looking for? What are you mm. looking at? Well, I'm not sure I'm looking for anything innate, but I may be looking for predisposed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe innate's not the right word. But. Yeah, so... I mean, yeah, I mean, some people will just make very good therapists and some people don't. And there are various factors. Um, I mean, you know, no, there are just some people, no matter how long you would give me with them, I'll never turn them into a good therapist. And, and, and that could be my feeling. But there are just some people, it just doesn't mean that much to them. It's not really that important to them. It's it was a part of the job or it was they think it's important to them, but it isn't really. And 
part of what what allows me to sort of separate the sheep from the goats in that respect is we really require people to do a lot of personal experiential work and and only because it, one i think people are entitled to be cared for and looked after because as a psychologist this is a very difficult job and and you always want somebody minding your experiential back as an individual not just as a therapist so i think that's really important but also the experiential work allows me to know that is someone willing to do something in their own lives that they would then ask a client to do. And I really believe that if you are not willing and for whatever reason not able to do functionally the things that we ask our clients to do, I just don't think, A, you've got the right, and I just don't think it's going to work for you to then ask clients to go and do that because I don't think you're really going to understand how challenging that's going to be and you know how much collateral that's actually going to cause in their lives. So one of the things that's really crucial to us is to ensure that therapists who train with us have undergone extensive experiential work and continue to be have access to experiential work while they're doing it. And go on. Just to be clear, when you say experiential work, you mean essentially them being in their own therapy. Yes, I really, really do. I right. absolutely do. One, it's it's a difficult job. They need it. They deserve it. And two, I think unless you've lived inside functionally those experiences, you don't know what you're asking a client to do. You don't really understand what you're asking a client to do or the sort of profound implications or the challenges, et cetera, that's going to have. So apart from all of the abstract training or information or skills training or acquisition I could give anybody, for me, the most important ingredient is the therapist's willingness in their own lives to get their own hands dirty and make genuine changes. Now, that doesn't mean their life is a test and if they pass, they'll get, I don't mean it that way. I just mean that they, for me, the most important ingredient for a good therapist is someone who is willing to embrace the same challenges in their own lives. And if I couldn't teach them anything else or give them anything or create any sort of hurdle, that would be the one that I would insist on most. Well, that's, that really brings us back to our beginning, right? It's not about content. It's about, it's about the form. It's about the function. Right? It's about the willingness to do it, not what you necessarily get out of any particular. It's about the willingness to dig deep when, when digging deep is really needed. And, and, and that's hard. Yeah, you know, the, the main reason I asked this question actually is because one of the, the questions in all of mental health that I'm, I'm just, in a really practical way, I'm, I'm fascinated and, and continually frustrated by is I hear from so many people who just talk about how hard it is to find a good therapist. Um, and, and, I'm, I'm con- and I also have this experience where, you know, I meet a lot of therapists or mental health professionals and I think, what, what are you doing? You, you are not in the right field. What are you doing in this line of work? Like, I can't imagine recommending anyone to work with you in therapy because either because there's a major lack of self-awareness or there, there's, there's, I don't know, there's just a lot of stuff. So I, I think a lot about this question of how can I, how can I equip other people to make a good informed decision about finding a therapist who's, or a provider generally who's going to be genuinely helpful for them. Um, and so I, I, you know, I almost wonder, <laughs> you got to ask a therapist if they've been in their own therapy before. But, but anyway, that, that's just the, I don't know, I think it's a big open question. It's a big dilemma. It is. We, we get that all the time. I mean, most clients we've had have seen 15, 20 therapists before right. us. I mean, that's a lot of time and money and disappointment and and of course clients assume that it didn't work because they're broken and it actually becomes a revolving door so i mean it's very very difficult to it is very has always been very difficult to recommend somebody that you would send your own children to yeah and it's because it, it it's it's a really a weird unique quirk of our profession where it seems like one of the only professions i can think of where you can't observe someone doing their profession because of, co- of confidentiality reasons. Yeah. <laughs> like you, exactly. you, can, you can't, any other profession, you can watch a mechanic, fi- uh, you know, fix your no. car. You can watch a plumber kind of fix your, you can watch an accountant do your taxes. You can watch an attorney yeah. argue in court, but you can't watch a therapist do therapy. Um, so it really, 
yeah, I just think it's a it's a really sticky problem, and it, it, yeah, it just kills me. Yeah, you are operating blind. Yeah, there there are so many people I think who, you know, they 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 finally get up the courage, and it, it really takes a lot of courage for a lot of oh, people yeah. I think to go to therapy the first time, and then they have this awful experience with yeah. some, you know, bozo who just yeah. turns them off for yeah. either the rest of their life or at least the next yeah. decade or so. I've had so many clients who said, yeah. I you know I had a bad experience when I was twenty five. And it's, it's 25 years later and it's taken yeah. them that long to get back into therapy because they had such a awful experience the yeah, first time. It's hit and miss at best, but the Ugh. damage, I just yeah. think uh, it, it, you bring the profession in dispute, uh, disrepute if you don't take that discussion very, very seriously. There are many clients that, that the profession has harmed on top of the harm that they already have. And I, I just think it's, you know, I think it's guilt that we all share and I think it's a, it's a responsibility we all have to, to grow up and talk about and, and try and think how do we redirect the field so that whatever else we do, we stop doing that. Yeah, people don't talk enough about iatrogenics in mental health, mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah. broadly speaking. And I, I, but I, back to the, the initial question, the way I phrased the question, I, I think in some ways maybe it comes back to our training models and how we don't yeah. seem to have any kind of protocols or, or guiding principles for helping people understand at the outset, like, is this going to be a good fit for you um, professionally? Because if it's not, if it's not a good fit for them, it's obviously downstream. It's not going to be good for all the people who come to see them. Um, so institutionally, I think we have to figure out, it strikes me that we have to figure out ways of identifying, um, you know, the sort of factors that, that are going to enable someone to be a really um, kind of compassionate, knowledgeable and effective provider. Yeah, and that but that would also have very significant implications because many psychology programs in universities are big money spinners. Mm. But what you're suggesting is the opposite. You're suggesting almost a hand-picked, very select, partly experientially based selection and training. And I, I totally agree with you that that's in you know I've been in universities a long time, and that's my experience. My experience is that you um, select very carefully and then when for you give them the training that you're going to give them along with you know like when we trained in Ireland we trained our undergraduates did experiential work as well and by the end of the degree they're pretty certain that this is not for them and Mm. I think that's the way to go but I can't see universities who want to have you know 2,000 undergrads all doing psychology courses Right. Um, who are going to buy into that. But ultimately, I think we do have to change that model to be a much smaller number, heavier, heavier, intensive training. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Yvonne, thank you so much for, for your time and, and being willing to share your, your experiences and expertise with us. Um, if people are interested to learn kind of more about you and your work, where's a good place for them for them to go? Yeah, they should just go to the to our website, the Go RFT website, G O for Gentadis's Go, and then hyphen RFT for relational frame theory. Go hyphen RFT.com, and they can watch us in therapy on videos. They can read some of the clinical papers. They can read the really abstract scientific papers. They can just get a feel for who we are and what we do, and and fundamentally what the science that we're about is about. So the Go RFT website's a good a good home yeah I, you guys are, are doing great work at least in my book so so thank keep it you. up and, and thanks again for, for coming on the podcast thank you it's lovely to talk to you hey everyone thanks so much for listening to this episode of minds and mics if you haven't done so already i'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on apple podcasts it helps out a lot and if you've already done that please consider sharing minds and mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it as always thank you for continuing to support the show and we'll see you next time